It's a special day today that I want to acknowledge. Happy Mother's Day uh, to uh, all the ladies in the room. You can certainly clap. Um, I was reading a blog by uh, a lady, Gretchen Smelter. She's a counselor. Lisa and I have been reading her blog for a number of years. It used to be called Emotional Geographic. And she wrote a blog on Mother's Day. And the first line caught my attention. And then as I unpacked it, it kept my attention. But her first line was this. Quote, the Mother's Day we have is not big enough to hold all of a woman's heart on Mother's Day, end quote. I agree with her, and I've taken her, her, her blog post, and I've, I've written a prayer that I want to pray over and for you, if I may, on this special day that we celebrate. Would you bow your heads? And here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to grab a hand. Uh, I'd like everyone to be holding a hand uh, rather than having mom stand or, you know, do something. I want you to just hold a hand. Everybody grab it. It might be a stranger, your spouse, your child. But uh, as I pray over you, you know no one, no one walks this journey alone. You do not. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the Mother's Day that we celebrate today is not big enough to hold all of a woman's heart. No card, no meal, no date on the calendar can hold what this word mother means to a woman. Whether it be their role as a mother, their relationship with their mother, or their longing to be a mother. We thank you for the genuine and deep joy of motherhood. It is worthy of celebrating. It is a gift from you. We smile recalling and anticipating all that motherhood gives and requires. But it is also a day of remembering loss and living with what isn't. While celebrating children born, we also remember the unborn, the living, and those who have died. Grant comfort and peace, O oh God, to those who made difficult decisions giving up a child for adoption or who chose abortion. May the power of your grace overwhelm them with your acceptance, forgiveness, love, and delight. May those who are reminded of children lost to addictions or estrangement, mental illness, rebellion, May they know that you are intimately acquainted with all their ways. And for many who are not able to conceive, we hold them even as you do, while they walk a path that they would never choose, but in the mystery of your providence, you have them on. Memories of mothers flood our minds and hearts on this day. And the day cannot hold it all. Oh God, the day cannot hold the wonder and gladness, the wounds and the sadness. But the gospel can. And the gospel does. In the Lord Jesus, we have a good shepherd who can sympathize with us in all things, who can hold our smiles and laughter on this day and hold our tears and our longings.
The gospel itself holds us and keeps us and sustains us. The good news that in Jesus and Him alone we are forgiven by His life, death, and resurrection. We are declared righteous. We are assured that you cause all things to work together for good. We are held by His faithfulness, His love, His promise that He will come one day and make all things right and whole and beautiful and glorious forever. And so on this Mother's Day, with all that it brings... We choose to be a people who celebrate most of all your love for us in Christ. For in Him and in Him alone, we can we all hold, men and women, moms and dads, all the gifts the day brings, those wrapped in bows and those stained with tears. To you and you alone be all glory, our God. In the name above all names we pray, the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Happy Mother's Day, ladies. Everybody take a deep breath. It has already been a full morning, hasn't it? Uh, and we will sit under the word here. I'm going to move quickly in this passage. I want you to take your Bibles, if you have them, please, to open them to Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 27. We continue our study through Mark's gospel. Jesus has entered Jerusalem to a king's welcome, but he has quickly come under assault. And it's not going to be a difficult passage to understand. It'll challenge our application. He is, he's being attacked on all fronts now. If you missed last week, grab it. Be sure and see Michael as he began uh, this series of questions that these religious leaders bring to Jesus to destroy him. I, I kind of think of these questions as grenades. They're like, pull the pin, throw the hand grenade to Jesus, because what they want to do is they want to trap him. They want to ensnare him so that they can destroy him. It's literally that black and white. This is the last days that he will live on the planet. What's amazing to me is Jesus not only answers the questions, okay? Can you imagine in a life-death situation, he answers the question, but he's also teaching. He's teaching them and he's teaching us some fundamental principles of life with God. In fact, what we're going to see is two uh, scenarios here. And in these two scenarios, we're going to get two principles that I, I really believe are absolutely essential for you and I, that we might have a heart that's transformed, okay, a, a, an inward transformation, which is what trusting Christ does, but then also an outward expression of that inward transformation. I don't know where you are today. Uh, so many you know, visitors today, Mother's Day weekend, so glad you are here. But here's what I want you to know. Everyone in the room, know this. God always desires that your relationship with him be ever deepening, personally, ever deepening in your experience of God. And that deepening in your relationship with him would lead to an ever-expanding influence in your world and the world at large. Deepening personally, expanding personally and corporately. And in those two phrases, you've really got the mission of Fellowship Bible Church. This is why we exist we're not here just to, to, to sing songs and, and to encourage what we're here to be transformed by God and thus transform our community and the world around us, whether it's in Kyrgyzstan or Sudan, Brentwood, Franklin, Nashville, you see. 
And these two principles are at the center of that. And so, y'all, there is a lot at stake uh, in the passage today. We're going to go through it. I want you to follow along beginning in verses 13 to 17. Uh, I'm going to call this section, this is going to be two sections. The first one we're going to call the question of ownership. The question of ownership. Here's what happens, verse 13. Then they sent, these are religious leaders, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. They came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Here it comes. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? Yes or no? Tell us. But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness, underline that word, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. A question of ownership. Pharisees and Herodians, you could not get two more disparate parties together. This is Republicans and Democrats, quite frankly. It's just way out there. Pharisees, ultra-conservative for the law. The Herodians, where do they get that name? Whose name is that? Here, oh my gosh, these guys despise him, but they... Well, you know, they're, they're Jews, but they're, they're for Herod. I mean, this is oil and vinegar. And the ones who sent them did this on purpose. Please understand. Because they're going to place Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. And you're familiar with the idiom. The horns of a dilemma. Where you have two equally undesirable choices. The horns of the bull. Look, you can choose the right one. It'll kill you. Or you can choose the left one. It'll kill you. And they have Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. The text says they came in order to trap him. And it's literally, it's the only time this word's used in the whole Bible, trap him. And it's, it's, it's a picture of trapping an animal where you put bait here and the animal comes in and you've captured the animal and then you can destroy the animal. Lisa and I live in Cottonwood. Some of you are my neighbors there. And... Um, uh, I, my, our house backs up to the Harpeth River, and so we've got a line of trees behind our house, and the river's there, and as you can imagine, lots of wildlife, you know, moving around back there, coming around the backyard and enjoying. It's absolutely wonderful until the wildlife wants to live in your house. And then you got problems, which we did about, I guess it's been over a year ago. Um, I would go out in the mornings, and, and my trash that was in the trash can would be just littered over the driveway, and we have a dog, her, na her name's Pearl. Pearl is a small, kind of undersized cockapoo, gray and white. And at night, Pearl, you know how dogs, they can sense, they got spidey senses, and they sense something in the, out there. And they, they're, you're in the house going, why is she going crazy? Because something's out there, and she knows it. So she's going crazy at night. Uh, I have a suspicion that this thing's a raccoon because uh, the lid on this 50-gallon trash thing is, is down and this animal is lifting it, like lifting the lid, pulling out the food and, and chowing down. And so uh, I uh, borrow a friend's varmint trap. Many of you have done this. All, guys, ladies, you, you know, you got this thing you got to get rid of. So you get the varmint trap 
And uh, I set it up and uh, I put some peanut butter in there uh, to get this raccoon for probably four days. I would go out and the peanut butter would be gone and the trap door wide open. I mean, this thing's like a fuzzy pickpocket and I'm going, this has got to be a raccoon. You know how they are. They get their hands going and stuff. And so I, uh, I, um, I, I took a, 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 a toolbox out of my son's truck. He, it wasn't locked in there and he had it in the back there. And I took it because it was big enough that I could take the, the toolbox and I could push it up against the trap. And so I had the trap between the toolbox and a brick wall. So the trap was really steady and sure. And you guys know these traps where you set that little, that little thing they hit and it goes down. But you got to set, I set it like a, like a trigger to where you could just breathe on it and it would go. But I had to have the trap really stable so that when the, the whatever, you know, the raccoon's walking in, it wouldn't trip it before it got to the peanut butter. Had the trap set, go out the next morning really, really early, and I've got nothing. So I go into work. I'm at work for a little while, and Lisa calls me, and she says, Lloyd, the trap worked. I'm like, yes, I've got a picture of it here. I caught my dog. That's Pearl. And, and you know how dogs are. They're the emotional beings. Do you see her shoulders just like shame, 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 you know, that I got caught. I'm dying laughing. Well, I, I, I show you that and tell you that story because this is what happens to the religious leaders. So they're going to trap Jesus, and we'll come back to this at the end, and instead what happens? They have the trap upon themselves. Exactly what happens in our story You see, if Jesus says, yes, pay the tax, then the Pharisees are going to go, oh my gosh, he's putting the state ahead of of God, you see. And then if he says, no, the Herodians are going to go call the Romans. He's rebelling against Roman authority. He calls for a coin, a denarius. Y'all, if you took out a penny, it would look like a penny. It's got images on it and inscriptions on it. If you looked at it, there would be the image of the Caesar of the day, Tiberius. And so their etched would be Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. In other words, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine. His father's divine, he's divine. Therefore, on the backside, it would say Pontifex Maximus, which means highest priest. You, you understand how odious this is to the Jews? He considers himself deity and they have to pay this. They've been paying it since 6 AD. That's how long they've been paying this tax. And every time they pay it, and everyone has, all the adults have to pay it, every time they pay the tax, they're reminded we're in bondage. We're oppressed. We're an occupied people. They hated paying this thing. Well, Jesus looks at it, and how about his answer? It's yes. Can I say that? It's, it's yes, pay the tax. And the, the principle is this. If you look at the coin, uh, whoever made the coin, their face is on it and their words are on it. So the, the maker of the coin is the owner of the coin and therefore give back to the owner what is his. That's his answer. Give it back. Yes. But before, uh, you know, the, the Pharisees can revolt, he doesn't take a breath and says, and render to God what is God's. Do you see what he's doing? Now, render to God what is God. When he said, whose likeness is this? Their minds, and I hope ours do as well as we become more biblically literate. When he says, whose likeness? Our minds should just, just race back to Genesis 1, oh, And God created them, man and woman. He said, let us make man in our image and in our, what word? 
It's the word likeness, you see. And so they would go, oh my gosh, we're made in the likeness, in the image of God. And you can tell he got them because nothing happens. They were just amazed. They didn't grab him. They couldn't grab him because of what that statement implied. Whose likeness do you see when you look in the mirror? When you ponder your life, your, your, your mind, your body, your will, your emotions, all that you are, what do you see in the mirror? You see the likeness of God, the image of God? This is what we understand ourselves to be. See, the answer to that question, as simple as it is, and I'm not taking for granted, everyone's there, please know this, it's okay, but I'm going to tell you something, it's a life-altering decision if you decide, I am made in the image of God, and you believe that, now the scripture teaches that. And I'm going to put it in principle form, if I may, here's the first principle, God's image in me means God's ownership of me, okay? There's the principle, God's image in me means God's ownership of me of me. If God, own, if God owns me, then, then what do I render him? You know, render to God what's God's. Well, Jesus, I think, answers this in verse 30. We're going to get this next week, but look at verse 30 in chapter 12. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. What do we give? What do we render to God? All that you are. Mind, will, emotion, body. All that you are is, is, is God's because he owns it because he made you in his image. God's image in me means God's ownership of me. And the implications are staggering. I'm going to actually ask and invite you, I should say, I'm going to invite you to recognize God's ownership of you before we leave the room because it relates to the second principle and we're going to jump to that. First is the question of ownership. Now we're going to take verses 18 to 27 and I'm calling this the great mistake. The great mistake. Follow along as I read beginning in verse 18. It says, Some Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection came to Jesus and began questioning him, saying, this is Deuteronomy 25, this is a law that God had given them so that the land would stay within the nation of Israel. This is very important that God instructed them, so they're absolutely correct in what they say here in verse 19. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. Now this is crazy. Listen to this story. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died, leaving no children. The second one married her and died, leaving behind no children. And the third likewise. And so, all seven left no children. Ray Stedman says, someone needs to check what she's feeding them. You know? <laughs> and then she does, right? Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, they don't believe in it, and these, they're asking them, in the resurrection, when they rise again... Which one's wife will she be? I've got to believe they were just grinning ear to ear as they asked this. For all seven had married her. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken? That you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God. 
For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, or he is not God of, the, of corpses, but of the living you are, here's where I get the statement, greatly mistaken. I get tickled every time I read that story. And maybe I, I shouldn't, but just you read it and go, really? Several years ago, someone sent me a, uh, just a sheet of paper and they had taken some excerpts from a book called Disorder in the Court. And it is literal word for word transcripts of questions and answers that happen in courtrooms all across the country. It's, it's things like this, if I can give an example or two. Question, you know, lawyers asking a question and, you know, the witness responding. Question, this myasthenia gravis, does it affect your memory at all? Answer, yes. And in what way does it affect your memory? Answer, I forget. Question, you forget. Can you give us an example of something that you've forgotten? Like, what? Are you serious? My gosh. Question, what was the first thing your husband said to you when he woke that morning? Answer, he said, where am I, Kathy? And why did that upset you? You know where this is going. My name is Susan. You know, that's... Or, this is so, this always gets me. You say, question, you say the stairs went down to the basement. Answer, yes. Question, and these stairs, did they go up also? I, last one, because I could go on. Question, doctor, before you performed the autopsy, did you check for a pulse? Answer, no. Question, did you check for blood pressure? Answer, no. Question, did you check for breathing? Answer, no. Question, so then it is possible that the patient was alive when you began the autopsy? Answer, no. How can you be so sure, doctor? Answer, because his brain was sitting on my desk in a jar. <laughs> Question, but could the patient have still been alive Nevertheless, answer, yes, it is possible that he could have been alive and practicing law somewhere. <laughs> yes. Oh, man. How about seven husbands and one woman? And Jesus doesn't laugh, does he? Because they were making a mistake so severe and costly. And it's a mistake that you and I can still make today. I'm going to put it in principle form. But first we'll look at the passage just a bit. Did you notice he uses the number seven a lot? It's, every time you look at where he says seven, it's the seven, the seven, the seven. Do you know what the number seven represents? Perfection, wholeness. 
So, so in their minds, this is the perfect argument. It really is. And I've got to believe, you've got to believe this isn't the first time they'd used it, you know, because they argue with people who, who don't believe in the resurrection. And then they would pull this out and go, well, let me ask you this. We have a man who, and they'd go through this and no one could refute this argument. It was their perfect argument. And of course, they hadn't come up against Jesus. The Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection. They did not believe in angels. Why? Because they only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament. They only took the first five, and in those books, they didn't see resurrection, and they didn't see angels. And so Jesus' responses are very, very telling. Notice the great mistake is this. They do not understand the Scriptures or the power of God. It's one mistake, not two. Because you, to, 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 to not know the Scripture and to not experience the power of God go together. You, you can't separate the Scripture from the power of God. Like you can't experience the power of God apart from the Word. You can't experience the Word apart from the power. They go together, and we'll see that in just a moment. He says about the resurrection, when they rise, this is not arguable, the fact that the dead rise, it's not in question. And not surprisingly, he goes to Scripture. And not surprisingly, guess which section of the Bible he goes to to prove resurrection? The only part they believe, Exodus 3.15, I am the God of. And men and women, when you think of the inspiration of the Bible, think of this. Jesus bases his whole argument on the tense of a verb. I am. I, I am presently the God of these three patriarchs, though they've been dead for hundreds of years. How can that be? Well, I go back to what I've been talking about over the last few weeks. Seems like every time I'm teaching, I'm coming back to this. But death is the separation of the soul that lives for your soul lives forever. Death is when your soul's removed from your body, then you're dead, you see, physically dead. But the soul lives forever. Oh, their bodies, listen, it's dust. I mean, it's, it's just gone, you see. But their soul lives, and God says, I am their God, because their soul lives. Now, the New Testament is going to teach us. Hang on that there's coming a day when God will take every person who's lived and died on the planet Earth and will take their body, though it's all dust and gone, lost at sea, burned in, I don't, we don't know. They'll take their body and reconnect it to their soul. That's resurrection. And you say, well, I think that's what happens to Christians, those who place their faith in Christ. Well, it happens to everyone, everyone. The person who's put their trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and Christ alone for a right standing with God, you're reconnected with your body to glory. And if you have not, you're reconnected to your body in judgment forever and ever and ever. Now, he gives them one fact about heaven, and, and I, can't, uh, I can't skip by it, even though time is short. I want to ask you to ponder something. He says this, you know, you wouldn't even be asking me this question if you really understood this. There's no marriage in heaven. We're going to be like angels. There you go. He comes back to them. Angels. You see, there's angels in the first, you know. What does it mean, like angels? We're not angels, we're like angels. Well, angels, men and women, when they were created, there's a certain number created, and that number never changes. They don't reproduce. They don't die. We'll be like angels. So there's no need to reproduce in heaven. Now, I want you to think about this on a serious, serious note. The implications just to that one fact about heaven are, are just pretty amazing, if I could offer this. Okay? It means no marriage in heaven, no procreation. It means this, then. 
Take this the right way. Marriage is not the greatest relationship there is. As awesome as it is, as much as the Bible holds it up, as much as it's right and true, and, and honor your marriage, you know, it, it, I'm, I'll, I'll land this, but it's not the, it, that's not the best. Sex is not the most amazing pleasure in life. Even on this Mother's Day, can I say this? Having children is not the greatest joy. Now, I'm not taking away any of what it is and the amazing things it is, but I'm just comparing it to our eternal future, you see. The most important relationships, okay, on the planet Earth are these. The most important relationship is your relationship with God and the relationships that you get the opportunity to help another person come into a relationship with God by trusting in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. See, these relationships, they last forever and ever and ever. My parents are both dead. They've, they've passed away, and you know, my mom died before my dad, and we did this, and you all can do this. It's okay. You know, I remember us saying, well, now dad's going to be with mom, and, and there's a sense to which, which, which they are. You know, they are together, but you got to go by, if we go by the Bible, we go, they're together. But do you, do you understand? They're not husband and wife. And, and, and I go, you know, if that makes, you know, I go, well, that makes me sad. Not, they are so much more than husband and wife in heaven. They're, they're, they're experiencing an intimacy with God and with each other that obliterates marriage, you see. I'm just trying to tell us to the degree that we, we think, these relationships and things on life are, are the best that it is. And we think heaven's, you know, going to take something away. Some of the guys are going, no sex in heaven? Oh, my gosh, you know. Now, but it's better. It's more, you see. And it's not taking away the wonder and the beauty of motherhood and all these things. I hope you hear me say that. A lot to think about there. Back to the great mistake. They do not understand the scriptures or the power of God. You cannot separate understanding of scripture from experiencing the power of God. If you, if you took the Christian life and you tried to just boil it down to the irreducible minimum, you couldn't do a lot better than this. Okay, the Christian life is knowing the word of God and the power of God and being changed by the word of God and the power of God. That, 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 this is the Christian life. The word understanding is a, a, a Greek word, O-I-D-A, but it's pronounced yutha, yutha, and it means to, to know. So it's, you don't know the scriptures, but it's, biblically, it's not a knowing that a lot of our kids are taking their finals in the next week or so, and they just study the facts, they know them, they get them, they get a grade. But, but you know, what they know often, most of the facts, it doesn't change their life. Biblical knowing is to know something to the degree that it changes your behavior. It's to trust truth to the degree that it shapes your worldview and life. And it shapes how you go about living your life. That's biblical knowing, you see. And you hear in that faith and trust. So here's the principle I'll give it to you of the great mistake. Your knowing scripture must not outpace your living scripture. I'll say it again. Your knowing scripture must not, you know, must not outpace your living scripture. It's like what you know you live. I'll say it another way. 
our studying the Bible must be matched by our trusting the Bible. You study it, it, it must be matched by our trusting what it says. Do you know that some of the most brilliant minds and people I read, Michael read, Rob reads, you know, the, the, as, we, as we teach or you read, some of the most brilliant minds on the Bible are not Christians. It's wild because they're just brilliant on the, the facts, but they don't know Christ, you see. But the data, the textual criticism that they do is, is amazing, but they are lost. I'll say it this way. What we know must be reflected in how we live. I'll let James say it in James 1.12. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Now, God's image in me means God's ownership of me. That's really important. And our knowing must not outpace our living. Now, I don't want it to outpace us today, so I'm going to have us do something. Go ahead and close your Bibles. Uh, we'll wrap up here in the next three or four minutes. Uh, I do want to kind of redeem myself, actually, if I can show this last picture to you. Um, I did get that rascal, just so you know. <laughs> I got him. See the peanut butter there? And uh, that's Bill Wellen's backyard where I released it, but I'm not t I haven't told him that. No, I did take it away from my house, and I'm not going to tell you where I let it go. But someone said to me uh, afterwards a little bit ago, well, it sounds like you didn't kill it, and I didn't say anything. But no, I did not. I let this, I let this guy go. He is, he is out there. Um, but it's also a, a, a funny yet, uh, you know, a, a picture. Can I say this as you look at that? This is the picture of life apart from Christ. This is what the religious leaders are doing. They resist the Messiah who's come to say, it's not what you do that makes you right with God. It's what I've done. Will you trust in my life, death, and resurrection? You see, and, and when we seek to do things to be pleasing to God versus we're accepted by God because we trust Christ, we live in a cage. It may not feel like it, but, but you are, you're bound, you're, you're, you're locked up, you have no freedom. That's why Galatians is the book of freedom. It's the book that tells us we're free in Christ. Okay, here's what I want you to do. And you don't have to do this, and it's going to take some of you courage to apply this. And, and some of your courage may be to, to, to not do what I'm going to ask you to do. Quite frankly, you do what God wants you to do. But I want you to look at your hands. This is, you know, just look at, I'm looking look at your front and the back of your hands. Just look at that. Look at your... I want you to look at someone nearby. You can look at your child. You can look at a friend. You can look at a spouse. This is awkward, Lloyd, but I'm doing it. Um, I want you to think about your body. I want you to think about your body, how you have been made, and the fact that you're breathing right now, and you actually are seeing through eyes that are incredibly complex. You're actually hearing me because of your ear that's incredibly complex, and you're understanding my words because your brain is working. If you, and I only want you to do this if you know, okay? This is only if you know because you believe it and trust it, that you are made in the image of God, that God has made you in his image. I'm not going to ask anybody to close their eyes. We're not going to do that. We're just going to go, hey, I'm gonna, this is what I believe. I want you to stand up. 
If you believe you're made in the image of God. If you don't, then it's okay. You can stay seated. But if you believe you're made in his image, and this is just, this is just us applying, you know, we don't want our knowledge to outrun our, our living it. So we're just trying to go, you know, I'm going to stand up. This is, just stand there, and I, and I want to say a few words to you. If you believe that you are made in the image of God, and we go back to the text we just studied, then God's image in you means his ownership of you. So what you're, you you got to understand is you are not your own. Now, track with this. It means there is nothing God may not ask of you. Well, he can't ask me. Well, he owns you. Well, why can't he ask that of you? I mean, honestly, I'm just looking at the room going, if you stood, this is... It's staggering what it means if you believe this. God has a purpose and plan for you. He's made you for a reason. And it's not, it's not for you. It's, it's, it's tied up in his word. And I can tell everyone in the room this, made in the image of God. God has put you on the planet in order that your life would glorify him. That there would be a point in time where you would put your faith in Christ the Holy Spirit indwells you, and then your life is not your own. You recognize it's God, so the rest of your life, you're going, God, what do you want me to be about? God, what do you want me to do? God, how do I show the world what you're like? That's why we are here on the planet. And you say, well, well, I'm here to, to be a doctor. I'm here to help people. That's wonderful. But I'm going to tell you something. There's no higher calling to live as a follower of Christ and glorify him. And that's what he invites all of us to do. I want you to close your eyes, and now I do want to pray for you. For as you've stood and recognized God's ownership of you, that means rendering to God that which is God's. And so Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Before you walk out of here thinking, I've got to do that, you must first recognize that God has loved you with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind, and with all of his strength. And he's demonstrated that love in sending the Lord Jesus Christ to live the life you couldn't. You couldn't be perfect. And Jesus died the death you deserved. He died on the cross, was buried, and raised again. And therefore, you see, responding to his whole love for you, we respond with our whole love for Him. And it's only by His Spirit's work in us that we even understand that. And in this moment, may I ask you to think, just, just listen, what is God inviting you to do? Just the next thing in your world. What's he inviting you to trust him for? What, what's a promise he's saying, hold this promise? What's a step of faith he's saying, just this one step of faith? What is it for you? Would you think about that?
Oh God, we want to be a people who recognize your ownership and render to you all that's yours. And we do not want to make the great mistake to know more than we're living. And it's only by your Spirit's work in us that that can be true. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do His will, working, God's working, you see, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever and ever. Amen and amen. God bless.